0: Is
1: Mark 8? Okay, 34 to 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what uh, can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory
0: um, with the holy angels.
1: Don't get too excited. (laughs) Alrighty. So, given that I'm up first, I figure it's probably fitting that my focus here is actually the first passage in this, uh, sorry, the first verse in this passage, which is, as you just heard, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So Dave mentioned last week that this passage is a turning point in the story of Jesus. Up until now in the book of Mark, we've seen uh, stories of Jesus' power. We've seen him healing the poor, I'm sorry, healing people, driving out spirits and demons. We've seen him feeding thousands of people. We've seen him walking on water. We've seen him raising the dead. We've seen Jesus encountering increasing challenges and rising up in this sort of calm confidence and power to, to just overcome them and defeat them that's the jesus that the disciples at this point have seen that is the jesus that they are listening to the man that who is in new and wondrous ways overcome every opposition wherever he's encountered it. and it's not just the disciples we see here that jesus is talking to yes his disciples but also to the crowds that are following him people who are drawn to him by stories of all these amazing things he's done. People are drawn to him about stories of the miracles that he's um, performed. People are drawn to him by the stories told by the people that Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this. Keep this real quiet. And then, of course, they've gone and told stories and now everyone's following him. So when there's these people who are following him because of these amazing things he's done, these glorious things he's done, these things that have provided them with this amazing hope, Jesus then turns around to them and he says, he basically says, this is not going to be the glorious march to victory that you're expecting it to be. This isn't going to be the way that we're going to do these miraculous, powerful things and overthrow Rome and become like this, the new power in this world. He tells them that this is actually going to be more like walking along with a cross on your back. The cross was this symbol of like Roman oppression. It's what they... Um, they would take the people that they wanted to make an example of. They'd make them suffer. They'd make them carry this terrible thing, this thing that was like a, an electric chair, a guillotine, a lethal injection. Make them carry it and then be hung on it in view. It was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of um, defeat. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to choose to take this up. This is not going to be something that you do to gain honour and glory. For yourself, and he says that it's because following him involves denying yourself. The original Greek word, which I can't pronounce, but I'm going to try, which was I think apaniamai, uh, it means basically to insist you're not associated with someone. And Jesus tells us that we must deny ourselves; that we must insist we are not associated with ourselves. That we don't, that we don't make our decisions, that or speak our words, or live our lives, for our own interests and our own glory. I said this passage was a turning point, where we turn with Jesus from this kind of demon, this constant demonstration of power and glory, and he turns toward that night on the cross, that day on the cross that's coming. We turn from him walking on water, showing what he can do, to walking under the weight of that cross up the hill. We turn from everything he's been doing by inspiring his followers, and we turn towards that one final night at the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus shows what denying ourselves really means. As he prays in that garden, he says, Let this cup pass from me. He's asking God to take the challenges from him, remove the pain, remove the suffering that he's about to experience on the cross. And he says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Make me not have to do this thing. But in the end, he ends with this trust and submission to God's will. He says, he shows us what it means to really deny self and follow God. He says, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus says we must deny ourselves to insist we aren't associated with ourselves, but he also shows us how that looks to live out. It looks like not my will, but yours be done. In any decision we make, take it to God. Be honest about what we want, what we fear, what we desire, what we don't want, but end in the end with not my will, but yours be done. Thanks. Thanks.
2: I'm Sarah, good morning. morning. I wonder what your initial reaction to this passage has been today. Has it been an enthusiastic, yes, Jesus, I lay myself down wholeheartedly? If so, that is wonderful, praise God. That has certainly been my response at times. But if I'm honest, my reaction when I recently read this passage was a no, a firm no. I don't want to. I don't want to give X, Y, and Z up. Actually, I'd rather pretend that I hadn't just read those words. So in these few minutes, I thought I would share some thoughts about that reaction and some ideas about what to do when our hearts respond in that way. When we sense the hesitance in our hearts and minds, what's going on? Well, the first thing to say is this is a big ask. Jesus is asking that we lose our lives. Right at the heart of the gospel is an acknowledgement that he is God and I am not. As Christians, we have to acknowledge our weaknesses and get over ourselves and say over and over again, I am wrong, you are right, you are God. This thing that I'm holding on to and refusing to be open-handed about, it might not be inherently sinful in itself, but my failure to lay it down is the problem. I'm saying, I want this more than I want to follow Jesus. In order to lay our lives down, we have to trust in God. And I think as life happens, our trust can fade, our view of God can become cloudier. There are lots of things that can lead to a lack of trust. Painful memories, the ache of grief, whispers of discontent, the attractiveness of sin, previous disappointment pain inflicted by church and other people. All of these things can feel like evidence that he is not trustworthy. Apathy, busyness, distractions can contribute to our hearts becoming hard. So how do we move forward well? Sometimes it can be pretty straightforward. A matter of obedience. I know I'm not submitting, I'm convicted, I quickly repent and boom, sorted by the grace of God. But... Other times we get stuck. When my son Josiah was a baby, sometimes he would just cry and cry like babies do. He would be fed, changed, comforted, rocked, and he would still be crying. In those moments, my late husband Malcolm would hold him as he was crying and just calmly say, tell me all about it, just tell me all about it. And I think that's what Jesus is like with us. As we rail against him in our spirits and our hearts, As we consider choosing less than him, he wants us to tell him all about it. He sees and cares about where our pain and lack of trust is born. He sees the roots of our unbelief and he invites us to come to him with it. Not just acceptable sadness, but anger and bitterness and our offense directly towards him. From right within our messy lives and obstructed view of him, he wants us to tell him, I don't want to submit to you because, I don't really trust you because some may say, how dare we tell God of our offense to him? I actually think that bringing these laments is an act of faith. Instead of walking away, we turn to him with our grief about our sin, or the costliness of following him, or our disappointments or our pain. Lament is a mysterious and miraculous thing. All but one of the Psalms of lament ends in praising God. As we tell him all about it, he softens our hearts. He lifts our eyes to him. He shows us himself. Jesus himself lamented. He didn't want to be crucified. He cried out to his Father in heaven, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but your will. Sometimes we don't want to pray. I have certainly prayed prayers like, God, help me want to pray, or help me want to want to pray. (laughs) But when we can't even bring ourselves to pray, we may need Christian friends and family to listen to our hesitance or our hard-heartedness or our offense at God, and then lower us down through the roof to Jesus, like the friends of the paralyzed man. Thank goodness for his body on earth, his people. So as we weigh the choice of holding onto our lives or of giving them up, let me remind us that we are choosing a life of intimacy with Jesus, this Emmanuel God with us always, endlessly graceful, infinitely loving, mysterious, untamable, not fully knowable yet. I don't think he promises us wealth or health or safety or pleasure or comfort, but he promises us himself. To finish, I want to read a verse from Psalm 139, and this is a prayer for us all. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting.
3: Quick question. Why is the intern preaching? Shouldn't he be at the back, like wiping down seats or something? Actually, you're probably right, I'll get back to it afterwards. Let me start with a story. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving home and felt the Lord prompt me to share the gospel with someone at an outdoor store. I half-heartedly pulled over and sure enough, it was the guy at the counter. Eventually, I got talking about the church next door, and there was this moment in the conversation when I knew I could share the gospel. But to be honest, I felt afraid. I imagined the rejection of what he would think of me and having to walk out of the store embarrassed. So I let the opportunity slip by, and walking out of the store, I felt regret, knowing that I had missed the mark and failed to be obedient to God. Have you ever had a moment like that, where you knew that you needed to be obedient to God, to follow God in that moment, but you missed the mark? You weren't prepared to go through the rejection or the discomfort that following God requires. To sum up this morning's passage, I would say that it's about the costly and unthinkable way of Jesus and its rewards. I'll mention how Jesus was the example of walking a costly and unthinkable life. And how reward-bearing it was as well. And how Jesus calls us to follow him in his way. In verse 34 of Mark 8, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' way is costly. He is saying that if anyone is to follow him in this life, they are required to suffer. Now let me be clear, I'm not talking about going on a 100k run with with Reese. I'm saying suffering can glorify God through the self-denial, the self-sacrificial love that he calls us to. This is best displayed on the cross, where for the love of his creation, Christ was humiliated, tortured and was forsaken by God and man. For us, this means we are to suffer for the sake of others. It means by the power of the Holy Spirit denying ourselves our earthly comforts so that we can serve others. Let me give you some examples. This could look like being gentle and caring towards your child, even though they've woken up crying for the tenth time that night. It could look like preparing a beautiful meal for your gospel community, even though you've had an exhausting day. It could mean being kind and generous to your neighbour, even though they ignore you because you're a Christian. Me, it meant sharing the gospel with the guy at the outdoor store. But the way of Jesus is also unthinkable. Dave mentioned last week about how the Jewish people expected the Messiah to restore Jerusalem, that the Messiah would overthrow Rome and establish a kingdom that would never be overcome. But the way of Jesus was radically unexpected of the time. It was so unthinkable to Peter and most likely the disciples that he rebuked Jesus and later the elders and the chief priests accused him of blasphemy. To the world and even to professing Christians, the way of Jesus simply doesn't make sense. And Jesus' experience of facing opposition when being obedient to God is a clear example of how we too should follow God's commandments and direction even when we experience disagreement from others. When my parents finally decided to move from a little Baptist church after eight years of membership, it was so unthinkable that much of the congregation felt angry, disappointed and shocked. Who was going to do the audio and words at church, they said. Surely this wasn't the will of God. But my parents felt led by the Holy Spirit and after moving, our family experienced great spiritual growth can I encourage you to follow Jesus no matter how unthinkable the path takes you with Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Finally, the way of Jesus means reward. Verse 35, For whoever would, lose, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This teaching is for us today, but the principle has already been demonstrated in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus didn't only die so that we might get him, but that he might get us. Imagine you were deeply in love with a person and wished to be married, but they lived a crooked life and they were going to be put to death for their crimes. It turns out that we, the church, are that person. And Jesus swapped places with this dirty bride by dying and rising again so that we could live being cleansed and made holy. Christ's reward is a clean bride and our reward is being loved by a good husband. So even though there's a cost in this life, our reward is worth it. Although the way of Jesus is unthinkable to others, it means deep love, unreserved intimacy, complete unity, unspeakable joy in him. We can be assured that if we suffer in this life for the sake of Christ and others, our reward will be a beautiful eternity with our lover, our spiritual husband, Jesus. Let me finish with an example of a man who followed the way of Jesus. David Livingstone was an overseas missionary and went to Africa in the 19th century. He was convinced that despite great trials that came with his faith, the suffering was worth the joy. I paraphrase. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger, now and then, with the loss of the comforts of this life, may make us pause and the heart to quiver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in and for us. I sacrifice nothing. Thanks for listening.
0: That's generous, thank you. <laughs> Stuart's my name, and uh, great to be able to share with you today. And I want to focus on the last verse that was read, the the one where Jesus talks about, "If you're ashamed of me, then shame." I want to say is different from guilt. Very important, we get this. Guilt is um, really about the wrong actions that we do. Uh, shame is that we feel we're the wrong kind of person. Guilt is where we hang our heads down and say, uh, "Yeah." Slump our shoulders. Yeah, I did it. Shame is where we cover our faces and say, don't look at me. I can't bear that you look at me. The other thing about guilt is that it concentrates on the one who's done the wrong thing, whereas shame spreads around. It radiates to those around, the family members, the tribe members, the, the whoever we're associated with. It impacts everybody who's associated with that person. In verse 38, it focuses on shame. If we're ashamed of him, says Jesus, he'll be ashamed of you in that last day. These are very serious and difficult couple of words. They're quite shocking, really, and and kind of grab us, grab me, and say, the Christian life requires something far deeper than just living through most of my days, how I do. There is a kind of base existential reality my existence is bound up with this kind of judgment of jesus he's just called his disciples to follow him you know deny yourself and we've just heard some explanation of that it couldn't be stronger take up your cross come and die with me he says come and die with me it always looks great in movies when the great warrior come and die with me you know yeah and then i think hang on I'm glad it's on the movie, it's not me actually in the crowd there. And yet this is what Jesus calls us to, to be so identified with him that we count our life as loss, as not a thing that matters so much. There are few situations in life where we actually get that basic, few in our culture in our society that we're required to do that, and yet here it is. When I ever come across a passage like this, I always think, what else has he said said about these things? You know, other passages, Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you a life that is the fullest possible. Now, that's true. But here he's saying, come die with me. And if we think about it longer, we'll see there is actually a link between those two things. I would like to notice, too, the motivations that Jesus gives when he makes such claims upon our life. In this passage, the claim is all about the soul. The motivation is all about our souls. Really, you matter so much, even more than the whole world. You know, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and give up their soul? That's what he says. Your soul matters so much. Now, most of us think that way. We wouldn't admit it too much, and we we try to live a generous and, and kind life towards others. We try not to put ourselves on a pedestal. That's our culture and our Christian perspective as well. Uh, I guess in times of deep depression we don't value our lives, or maybe we do and the pain is so great we want to protect it at that deep level. But for most of us we live our life like, you know, take all my stuff but leave me healthy and well. That, that's kind of a basic thing for us too, isn't it? Our souls matter so much, says Jesus, more than anything else. And he says, focus on that soul. Just what is the most important thing? It is that it might live forever with him, is the idea. Your very self matters so much, so be with him. Give up whatever it'll take to save that soul, because that is the most precious thing to you. That's his argument, that's his motivation. Focus there. This is, um, I think, the sort of thing that we rarely spend much time on. We will sometimes in prayer, or sometimes, you know, with a friend, late night conversations, where you actually get down to really the deepest of things. Some of us have those conversations lots, most of us not very often. But they're often a turning point. They're a time of insight when there's a dear friend talking to us about what really matters most for us. The kind of question, are you living the life you really want? Are the things that matter most, are you actually putting them into practice? Have you balanced up all the stuff of eternity and now? They're deep questions. Have we made the choice about that and have we stuck by it? They're the kinds of things that Jesus wants us to reflect on. And having made that choice to to follow Jesus, to deny yourself in certain ways, will you keep going with that? And now it's not always an easy thing to do. And we sometimes find ourselves in incredibly difficult situations. And Jesus says we're in this world which is, he describes in two phrases, adulterous and sinful. Adulterous because the people had given up their love for the true God. Their, their relationship with him is so spoiled. They've just left it. And sinful, it's just so easy to live a life without God. It's such a condemning statement about the people of his own day, and the temptation will come to be ashamed of Jesus as he goes to the cross, as he is that one who is despised by people around. It's interesting, isn't it? it? Just follows on a couple of verses after where Peter does just that. Jesus is talking about, "Yes, I am the Messiah, I'm the great one, but I'm going to die on the cross." No, Lord, no, don't say that. Is Peter's very words. It is very easy to be taken away by that. If you've got a sneering family or workmates who get at you for your faith or just roll the eyes in that beautiful way people can do to condemn you, then you'll know what I'm talking about. The implications for this couldn't be greater. If you're ashamed of me, says Jesus, if you're ashamed of me, you don't speak up for me and name my name, I'll be ashamed of you. That is such a heavy word. I tell you, it would be hard to cope with except that Jesus just talked about his death for us, which cleanses us of sin. And so even when we get it wrong, Peter, for example, and Peter, again, he will deny Christ, won't he? He'll be ashamed of Jesus. Weren't you one of his? No, 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 never knew the guy. He'll say that in a very short time. If it wasn't in the context of knowing that Christ is our saviour, these words would be intolerable, I think, for us to cope with. And notice how he describes himself. When he talks about himself, he does it in the third person. It's not always a great way to talk about yourself in the third person. I always find it a curious thing when people do that. Don't we? Yes. No, that was the second person. But you know what I mean? When when somebody talks like and but what he does is he actually wants you to know who he is, the son of man. When the son of man comes, he's just admitted to being Messiah, and now he's putting that other great Old Testament idea together. He's just admitted I'm the Messiah, and he's put the Isaiah concept of the suffering servant who will die together, and now he says son of man, that great glorious one. These are beautiful things to string together within the matter of a few verses. The great son of man is the one who will judge the earth. That's who is going to be ashamed of you if you don't follow on with him. And he talks about when I come, when the son of man comes with his holy angels, the presence of the glory of the father, it really is ramping up here, isn't it? As to who this is. The angels are hanging about praising Jesus. That's who will come to judge this earth. When the Son of Man comes on that great final day, he will call the people who have trusted in him, who have named his name and have been faithful to the end. I just want to share one example that was so helpful for me when I was younger. I was at university, and I was studying psychology and sociology. I can tell you, just about every lecture was attacking my faith. Uh, it It was a very oppressive environment. Uh, intellectually it really caused me to work hard and think through my faith and you know often when you get beaten up most you know you come up strongest well I think in some ways that was part of my own development spiritually and I remember we used to have our, our Christian union and uh, the Christian group that met there and I was uh, just a member at this point and um, we would meet and there were about, about 40 or 50 of us in a room we'd get together on a good day there'd be 50 of us and uh, we'd have sometimes different speakers come along and talk to us about the faith or some element. And we had this time uh, one of the history lecturers, a senior lecturer, a guy called Stuart Pigan, still around, fantastic uh, Christian historian, doing all sorts of great work, even in his, I think, must be about 80, fine, fine Christian man. And uh, he was there, and he was going to speak. I don't even know what the topic was. But we were just sort of gathering and, you know, some sitting down and milling around in those kind of big uh, kind of seminar-type rooms. And one of the other faculty members that knew him poked his head in. said, oh, Stuart, what are you doing? Not this Stuart, that Stuart, Stuart Pickett. What are you doing? And he said, oh, it's the Christian Union. He looked around and realised there was all these Christians here. You know, I don't know how he kind of identified that quickly enough. Maybe all the Bible's on our laps or something, I don't know. And uh, and, and I, I didn't see his face. But I'm guessing it was a kind of roll of the eyes. Of course I don't want to be here. What a ridiculous thing. And Stuart Piggin, what a turkey you are. And Stuart loved it. I could just tell. And, he, and, and you could tell there was a relationship there. And you could tell there was, there was a banter between them. And he, he called out to him. And he said, come and join us. Come and join us for some of the good old time religion. And it you know, holds the Bible up. Well, the guy, of course, scooted straight away out. But I just thought, I don't know that I could have done that then. Had such a robust view of my own faith and willingness to be the fool for Christ. Willing to, willing to have that person say, you are an idiot. And there was Stuart Piggin, senior lecturer, who was prepared to be with all these you know, young Christian people in the room. And name and say, yeah, this is me. I'm with the scriptures. I'm with Christ. I'm with him. Come and join us. It was a lovely moment for me, and I've tried to uh, think through that again and again. I've tried to live up to that. I've tried to be that guy as well. I don't know I've ever quite got there as, as, with as much fun and enjoyment as he did that day. But at each moment we are tested and tempted to say, yes, that actually is me. Whatever folly comes back at me, whatever scorn, whatever comes back, I will cope with that. I'll be that person. And I think that's in our society, in our situation, what Christ is asking of us. Your soul is at stake here. Follow Jesus.
2: Name him. Love him. Keep at it.